Welcome to Virgin Territories, a podcast by the CSPH. Each episode, we bring you new guests, new topics, and ask all the questions you're dying to know. Without further ado, please welcome your host, Viva Manfredo. Welcome back, everybody, to Virgin Territory, a podcast by the CSPH. And today we're joined by Dr. Jane Fleischman. Welcome, Dr. Jane. Hey, it's so nice to be here. I'm really excited about your podcast. It's so good. Thank you. Um, so you have a great field of study, and we're just going to get right in. Uh, but I really wanted to start by asking asking you about your background on your PhD and what's your area of study and basically your life journey up to then. Sure. Well, let's see. Do you have about six hours? Because I'm really <laughs> old. So I'll just give you the, the uh, shortened version of it. So um, I'm a certified sexuality educator with a PhD in human sexuality from the Center for Human Sexuality Studies at Widener. Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania is a great place to go to school if anybody's interested because they really are interested in not just turning out uh, graduates, but they want to turn out people who want to make change and social change and are interested in social justice. So it was a perfect place for me because I've been an activist for over 40 years and I went back to school, get this, at the age of 56. So I was old when I started and I didn't finish until I was in my 60s. So I'm kind of new to this in some ways, but in other ways, I've been working toward this part of my career for my whole life. Um, it just comes to me really naturally. And my field is um, kind of an interesting one. You know, many of my uh, colleagues work with young adults or kids or young parents, but I decided to work with older adults and I'm on a mission. And because I'm old, I'm on a mission that I'm like working on really fast. So I have no time to waste. And my mission is to promote the sexual wellness of older adults, particularly those in marginalized communities, like uh, people who have a gender identity or a sexual orientation or sexual identity that doesn't necessarily conform to heteronormativity. Uh, and so I'm really interested in folks in the LGBTQ communities who are older. Um, I'm also really interested in uh, people who are uh, from racial or ethnic minorities who have really dealt with many different types of oppression that I, as a cis white woman, have not. And I believe that it's part of my role and my responsibility as a sexuality educator to really reach as many people from marginalized communities as I can. So it's a great, great challenge and a great field. I'm having a blast. It's really fun. Although I have to say COVID has slowed me down a bit, but I'm gearing right back up and I just got my vaccination. So I'm awesome. Yeah, really. Exactly. So uh, spring is here and I got my vaccination. So I got my little sticker right here. You can't see it online, but you can nice. I am yeah. so jealous of the sticker. <laughs> I hear you. I know it took me a long time to get. It. So this work that I'm doing now came after a pretty successful career I had in public service. As a uh, my last job was the director of education and training and medical education at a large psychiatric facility, 
And in that role, I had a large staff. Um, we had a huge number of patients. We had 500 patients and 1,500 people on staff. And I had a staff of about 10 people, and they were great. But when I got to retire, boy, I couldn't wait. I took it. And I never looked back. You know, now I'm, um, now I'm going to be 67 this month. And I feel like when I left my job in public service, I left because I wanted to make trouble one more time. As John Lewis has said, you know, <laughs> the late John Lewis, he said, um, make good trouble. And what Bayard Rustin said, uh, who was an amazing gay black man, he said, we need angelic troublemakers. I love that. I love that phrase. So I'm not so angelic, but I'm really trying to make some trouble and, and, and mix it up because nobody realizes that older adults have any type of sexuality. They think they're just kind of uh, sick or frail or incapacitated. And that's because of ageism, right? And then you right. couple that with sexism and racism and homophobia and transphobia. I mean, there's so many other issues. And when you're older, if you're fortunate enough to get older, ageism really is an incredibly difficult stigma to deal with. So I'm fighting on all those fronts and I'm having a ball. Yeah, that, that is an amazing work. And we we know there's a general reluctance by the society at large to acknowledge that um, older individuals have sexual desire sexually fulfilling lives why do you think society has this reluctance to think that older adults can be sexual beings still yeah that's a great question um about two and a half years ago i did a ted my first tedx talk and the talk was called is it okay for grandma to have sex now you probably guessed that and your listeners probably guessed that I would answer on the affirmative. And I believe that we have trouble on three counts here. One is in our U.S.-based society, we have a lot of trouble just talking about sex, frankly, right? We use sex to sell all sorts of products, but we can't really talk about sex in an honest way. And then... We don't revere our elders. We actually kind of shun our elders, right? We ostracize and kind of um, forget about our elders and they become invisible. And so talking about sex is hard. And then talking about sex among our elders who we don't even want to see, that's even harder. I have heard from many people that, um, you know, when they think about their parents or their grandparents having sex, there's something revolting. There's something repulsive about it. They don't want to go near it. And why is that? These are individuals just like these younger people are individuals. Why can't we afford them the same complexity and the same interest in desire and sexuality that we um, uh, endow in other, uh, other younger people? So I think we have some real work to do in terms of seeing older adults as the complex individuals that they are with feelings, emotions, and um, um, you know, real struggle in terms of still trying to figure out who they are. Um, here's one example, being one of the things that I come in contact with all the time is this idea that, for instance, trans people are only younger people. 
And of course, we know that's not true from our work in sexuality. We know that's not true from historically knowing that trans people have been with us for generations. Right. And yet we have some strange idea that this is some new concept or some uh, young people's uh, uh, territory. And so I think what we really have to do is begin to look at older adults truly with the complexity and the the understanding. Because if we don't, then I think we're robbing ourselves of our own sexual freedom at the end of our own lives. And so I'm not only interested in, um, like my research is on sexual satisfaction. I'm not just interested in sexual satisfaction. I'm really interested in this idea of a sexual journey from birth to death that changes over time, right? If you look at Lisa Diamond's work on sexual fluidity, you know, she did longitudinal studies of people's orientation and how that might change as they um, age. And, you know, I always let people know, don't make any assumptions because on your sexual journey, you might actually uncover some part of yourself that you never felt comfortable looking at before. You might have been maybe closeted for years. You might have been afraid. You might have had a religious tradition that didn't allow you to really be your authentic self. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a chance to talk to older adults who really um, love this stuff. And when I come to a senior center or a senior living community, people are so excited to talk about sex because no one is willing to talk about it. It's happening. People are having sex or they're wanting to have sex, but nobody's talking about it. So when I walk in as a sex educator and I bring my condoms and my lubes and my penis puppet and my vulva <laughs> puppet, they get a good laugh, right? And they also realize, oh, yeah, there's somebody here who wants to talk to me about real life. Right. And it you bring a good point where your sexual desire, your sexual orientation, your your sense of self doesn't disappear as you age. It continues to be with you. So there's no reason why we should think that older individuals have no more desire or they're just going to retire happily in a corner or something right. <laughs> along those lines of what people imagine. We are still complex sexual creatures that have our desires, our kinks, our, our everything. We just carry that with us and we keep evolving as we age. We weren't the same as when we had our sexual debut than when we were in our 20s, on our 30s. Why not continue thinking that that trend is going to keep happening and you will learn more about yourself in your 40s, in your 50s, all the way up to your 90s and hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, you bring up a couple of points that I wanted to raise with your listeners. One is um, when you talk about kinks, often people have that same sort of ageist understanding about kink, right? And kinky behavior is really only for the young. Well, that's absolutely not true. And in fact, um, in the leather community, people say, you know, leather makes you still look good even when you've got wrinkles. And, you know, <laughs> right. So, um, but one of my colleagues, Sabita Pillai Friedman, uh, is a, a, a sex therapist and also a, a professor. And when she talks to her clients who are older adults, 
you know, sometimes they had some trouble with penetration, for instance, penis and vagina uh, intercourse, if they're a, a heterosexual couple. And part of that may be because the person with the penis doesn't uh, feel that they can um, create or sustain an erection for a long enough period of time for the sexual behavior that they're interested in. Or perhaps the person with the vagina may feel that the vaginal walls are too thin and so there might be some tearing with penetration and it could be painful or there isn't enough personal lubrication. And so often we talk about this term outer course. It's just a term that some sexuality educator before me came up with and I loved. Yeah. And the idea is any form of sexual pleasure that doesn't include penetration. And what Sabita was telling me once was that some of her older clients are happy without a course, but they're also looking to kind of spice it up a little bit. And so she teaches them a bit about what kinds of kinky behavior might be fun for them to try out in a way that could be accessible for them. And she said they've been really interested in that. And I thought that was a, a great example of really kind of turning over that stereotype about older adults and changing behaviors. And then the other thing I think I wanted to raise that you were talking about is um, John DeLamata, who was um, one of our favorite sex researchers from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, just died a few years ago. And he did a great uh, bit of research where he found that um, older adults in their 50s, 60s, and 70s were still continuing to have sexual activity in their lives. And anecdotally, I have heard people come up to me at the end of many workshops, although it doesn't happen anymore because I'm doing all my workshops on Zoom. But in the old days before COVID, it was a lot more fun. I'd get, you know, done with my formal presentation and I'd be putting away all my puppets and everything and my materials. And someone would walk up to me and say, see that person over there? She's in her 90s and she's got two boyfriends or I'm in my (laughs) 80s and I've got three girlfriends or, you know, whatever it is. And it's been so much fun to hear those stories. So again, that's just anecdotally from uh, my experiences, but um, Delamada's research uh, really, I think, um, indicates that we, in the um, at least in the research world, we have acknowledged that people are continuing to have a sexual life even into their latter years. That's wonderful. I mean, that's what I hope for myself and. Yeah. For my partner, when when yeah. we're on our nineties, I I hope we're still sexual beings, and however that looks for us, and and having that whole repertoire open to us, and how we can explore each other's sexuality into our 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 sunset years, if we will. Um, so, talking about your um the people that go to your um to your seminars in the times before, what are the issues that prevent um, older adults from pursuing or reaching sexual pleasure? Uh, well, I sort of see it in two areas. And um, there's sort of the biopsychosocial realm that we have to look at. So some of it is biological, mechanical, um, and truly just uh, uh, the body changing, right? So I, I mentioned a couple before in terms of penises and vaginas, um, you know, we also know that 
prostate is a very common problem for men, and that um, a prostate, um, a, someone who has had prostate surgery uh, will not be able, many of them will not be able to have an erection. And so it doesn't mean for all, but uh, if within 18 months you, of your surgery you have not been able to sufficiently have an erection, then chances are you will not be able to. So that's a huge issue for a lot of people, particularly because of the psychosocial side, which is that for some people, not being able to have an erection means that's the end. I can't have sex anymore. I'm done. I'm not who I should be. And it's a patriarchal kind of notion that comes into you know the air and the water and the soil that we're living on that is very hard to shake. Um, but particularly for a lot of people who grew up as men who, you know, thought that that's how I'm supposed to have sex is one way. That's very, very difficult um, to get around. And that's something which I think, you know, an educator like myself could help people with. And also a really good sex therapist could help people with. But the, but the, the stuff that's most prevalent, I think, is not the biomechanical or the physical stuff. It's, it's the kind of in my head thing. Um, Maggie Syme wrote a great article that the title is At My Age. And she talks about this idea of the narrative of sexual dysfunction. All we talk about is problems. You got a problem with this. You got a problem with that. You got a problem with uh, meds. You got a problem with um, uh, chronic diseases and pain. But what if we flip that around and talk about sexual wellness? and sexual functionality, where we can really begin to think about sexual pleasure in a different way. And then that brings in the whole person, not just this idea that, you know, one part is all we need to have sex with, or sex is only one door. And I often tell older adults, find find another door, find, you know, we talk about sexual scripts, but find another door to open so that if the one that used to work, if you know, you were the one on top all the time, but now your hip is starting to hurt or, you know, you used to have fun being on the kitchen table and that's just not working anymore because it's just a little too hard for your bodies. Find a new doorway and find a toy or, or another tool that you can use that can be helpful. Uh, so I think that the psychosocial side is really much more prevalent in terms of being a real challenge for people. And some of it is, um, for instance, um, the stigma attached to being horny at an older age. You know, we call people randy and kind of, you know, it's a derogatory term. Well, well, why not be horny at an older age? It's great. Right. Why not? You know, you've still got some testosterone in there. Use it, baby. You know, go for it. So <laughs> I, I think that that's part of the stigma, right? That we're not supposed to be. So, so, um, so those are some of the um, uh, some of the issues, and I'm actually doing a, a training now on the assessment, diagnosis, and treatment of sexual challenges for older adults because I think that therapists need to know about them more so that they can really begin to t uh, sort of tease apart what's going on in your head and what's going on physiologically, and what can we um, do something about. And we're living in a, in a time now where we've got all sorts of toys that are available on the market for people with chronic illness, for people with chronic pain, for people who have older bodies, 
So, you know, I think we can um, really relish the time we're in right now. Yeah, and, and there's, in, in, the, in the realm of accessibility, there's tons of new furniture even that has come out in recent years, like wedges and hard yeah. pillows that are to make certain positions more accessible and they're geared towards either people that have mobility issues, but could also very well work for older adults where the hip is starting to hurt or I don't have the muscle strength anymore to hold myself up or uh, things like that. So there are, there are a lot of ways to keep exploring and keep relearning what your sexuality is. Yeah. You know, um, Do you know the website Hot Octopus? They're really uh, cool people. It's out of the United Kingdom. Um, so they have developed some really interesting sex toys, particularly one that they really uh, are very proud of for men who can't, or for penis owners who can't get an erection. The, the vibrator actually um, goes around the penis and can actually help create the, the idea of an erection. Very interesting stuff. They're creating a whole line of toys for people with disabilities and for older adults. So it's exactly what you're saying. Like these companies are realizing there is a market out there. There's people <laughs> yeah. who want to buy this stuff. So yeah, I spoke at a, um, a meeting last fall for the National Council of Jewish Women in New Jersey. And my cousin, um, is a part of it. And after I finished the workshop, the women there were so excited about sex. They want me to take them on a tour of the sex museum in New York City and then to go to a sex toy store so they could all buy some toys. And I thought, what a fun tour that would be. So I can't wait till COVID is over so we can do that. Absolutely. <laughs> that that sounds like a wonderful tour. I want to go. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> We should do it in Providence. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've been to the Museum of Sets in New York a number of years back yeah. and it's wonderful. I, yeah. I loved it. I can't I can't wait to go back. Yeah. You know, Vima, if you ever go to Reykjavik, Iceland, I know it's kind of far away, but just remember there's a really cool museum there. It's the it's the phallological museum and it's devoted to the phallus and it is such a cool place. It's a riot in some ways because they're very humorous, but it's also really serious. It's really fantastic. They've got great artifacts and great, uh, they've got bronze castings of the whole, um, uh, soccer team that was the champion team of all of their penises. And it, it just on oh, goodness. All of them. It's hysterical in some ways. <laughs> and it's also really wonderful. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so I wanted to bring, I did. I'm sorry. I had a point <laughs> that before we got derailed on, on museums. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the contrast between talking about sexuality and aging as discussed for cisgender men versus cisgender women, because there's definitely a difference there on how we talk about older men versus older women in, in the cisgender category. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of a cougar versus uh, a man that has erectile dysfunction and all these different things on how we talk about sets mm -hmm. in this area. Yeah, right. A cougar is, would you say that's the respected term? Absolutely so. not. I don't think so. I think it's, um, <laughs> I think it's similar to young women being called a slut 
and that term kind of follows them. Um, and we talk about men with gray hair as distinguished, and then women feel that they have to color their hair when they get gray, right? I mean, these are really different, different um, social uh, and societal um, uh, kind of rules that really need to be turned over. And so I would say we, t- we, we treat women's sexuality as a problem. Um, uh, Lenore Tiefer has done some great work on that um, for years about uh, looking at women's sexuality as a problem. Uh, we even have diseases that have been um, named for women who have desire disorders, right? Hyposexual desire disorder. This is a, a kind of a, um, a misnomer because so many women have been prescribed anti-anxiety and anti-depression medications without being told what the side effects are of the SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SNRIs. And one of the side effects is that it actually dampens their ability to feel desire. And so we're on one hand, we're offering women these medications to help them through a mental health issue, but then we're creating a sexual health issue, right? And then right. we're naming a disorder after it. It's in, it's incredible and it's, it's kind of crazy. So I would say, um, we really treat cis women and cis men in very different ways. Um, and particularly when we're older. And I think that's part of the work that I'm trying to do. And by the way, I'm working with professionals and paraprofessionals who work with older adults in senior living communities. So nurses, social workers, PTs, OTs, you know, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and more importantly, all the nursing assistants and the aides who are the personal care assistants who probably spend the most time with older adults and have the least educational um, accessibility, who are mostly people of color, who are mostly people who are being underpaid, and they're mostly working with residents who are white. And so there's that whole racial dis, you know, uh, 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 disproportionate, uh, really difficult uh, racial um, uh sort of disembodiment, but also I'm working with people who want to do the best job possible and give older adults as much joy as they can have in their later years. And they talk about in these senior living communities, um, uh, you know, wellness from a mental health standpoint, physical health standpoint, maybe financial health, maybe spiritual health. But they never talk about sexual health and, and wellness from a sexual standpoint. And so I'm working with administrators and also the people who are on staff to try to broaden their minds and their consciousness to think about sexual health as a part of daily living for people who are living in senior living communities. And I'm sure, you know, your listeners know places wherever they are. Um, where older adults are living in a, you know, in a, in a small community, maybe a hundred, a couple hundred people. And I'm sure there's no training in most of those places on sexual health for the staff who are working with um, the residents. And so I hear these um, 
sort of crazy stories. Um, uh, recently, uh, an executive director of a assisted living community called me and she said, um, we've got a guy in here who's um, got some dementia and his wife is still living in their home. And one of the staff came upon him one day and a woman was in his room on her knees. And basically she was having sex with him. And when the staff came in the door, the woman leapt up, ran into the bathroom and said, oh, I was just here looking for a Band-Aid. <laughs> so that's interesting in itself. Right? And so the executive director calls me up and says, what do I do? What do I tell the wife? And I said, yeah, we got to talk to the wife. But we also have to talk to the woman who was in his room. We have to talk to the staff member who walked in on them. We have to talk to the social worker. You know what I'm saying? We have to talk to all of these people. And we have to talk to him. Because we want to know where he's at in terms of his cognitive impairment. That he knows where he's at and what's going on and who he's having a sexual uh, encounter with. So I find that that kind of puzzle is really interesting to me. And I love a good puzzle organizationally. And I, and I feel that, you know, what I can offer someone in that uh, capacity is my years of experience working in large systems and my knowledge of sexuality. So uh, I think we can really do a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, and and that is an interesting case between the the cognitive abilities of a person that has dementia versus their ability to consent to a sexual encounter. Right, right. That is something that the the staff of a living facility facility needs to be educated on because it's a very delicate area. That if you don't have that expertise, you don't have that education it can really damage everyone that is involved. Right, right. And staff are making decisions on a nanosecond. They're making a case-by-case decisions. And that's not the right way to run a big building of hundreds of people. What you really need to do is have discussions. But if you're going to have discussions, it means you have to be willing to talk about it. Right. And most people are not willing to talk about it, but the discussions will lead to good policies. Um, you know, in these places, there are policies about everything, about how much soup you can bring home from the dining room and, you know, that kind of thing. And yet we have no policies about people's interest in having sexual wellness. There's a few places. There's a, a place in the Bronx, um, uh, the Hebrew home, that's had a sexual wellness policy for, well, I don't know, about 15, 15 years now or so. And there's a few other places uh, that I've been doing research on, but this idea about are people giving consent um, is complicated when you talk about cognitive impairment, as you were just raising. But it's also important because some older adults haven't had any sex education about consent, right? We think of consent as kind of like a sex educator's, you know, uh, password. That's what we talk about all the time. But most older adults have had very little sex education. Don't get me started on this. This is another whole um, we could do another whole podcast about how messed up our world is in, in the United States in terms of how little sex education we have offered to um, young people and certainly uh, adults as well. But in other countries, we're actually doing it. You know, I have a colleague in uh, Sweden who's, you know, says this is, this is part of life, you know, and if, if there is no sexual wellness, this is a political problem. We've got to do something about it. We don't Absolutely. talk about that here. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so important. Um, so no, another aspect of older adults is our queer older adults, our LGBTQ plus older adults. And that's something that is really not talked about. Our society is conditioned to think about heterosexual couples as aging gracefully together, while same-sex couples or gender-diverse couples are usually looked upon stuck on their youth or stuck on trying to relive their their earlier years. Is there anything that we can do to help fix that, basically? Yeah. um, For um, an LGBTQ plus individual who came out at a younger age and then finds themselves in need of uh, assisted living of some sort and has to move to senior housing or um, uh, can't afford where they're living and moves into public housing for seniors. For many of those adults, it's like another coming out that they have to do. And there's a lot of fear attached to those, those um, changes in residence. My research on older adults uh, in what I call same-sex or same-gender relationships um, that I uh, chose for my uh, doctoral research, I just um, published an article in the Journal of Homosexuality about the correlates and predictors of sexual satisfaction among older adults in same-sex and same-gender relationships ages 60 to 75. And what I found when I did my research, uh, it was amazing to to look at this, but I thought this group of people who are baby boomers, you know, people who were born uh, and came of age in like the 1960s and 70s, I thought this group would have very high internalized homophobia. I thought that their views of themselves mirrored the the homophobic views from the outer society. And what I found when I did my uh, survey, it was an anonymous online survey, was that actually their internalized homophobia was quite low. I was very surprised and excited about that. It was heartwarming. It was like, yes, people don't <laughs> believe the, the lies anymore. Right? Um, secondly, I, fa- I now let me ask you a question. Actually, maybe you could, uh, you you would know the answer to this. I looked at their resilience or their ability to kind of get up the next morning and and get back to it. Would you say that that group of people, LGBTQ older adults, had high, medium, or low resilience? What would you think? I will hope high, and that will be my vote. <laughs> you got it. Really high, off the charts, like almost the top. And again, that one didn't surprise me so much. It obviously didn't surprise you either, but it, it speaks to this notion that once you've been through a lot of struggle and a lot of struggle, I'm talking about financial struggle. I'm talking about being shunned from your family struggle. I'm talking about having very little access to good healthcare struggle. I mean, so many different struggles. And once you've had so many struggles, You've come through it. If you're, if you're lucky enough to live through that, and many of these people lived through the last pandemic, the HIV AIDS crisis, 
Right. So if, if you were fortunate enough to get through that, then your resilience must be pretty high. So yeah, you're absolutely, you got it right on. Yeah. So what I found was that this low internalized homophobia, this high resilience led to, or it didn't really lead to, but was correlated or connected to a very uh, high relationship satisfaction. And all three of those, if you make kind of like a little triangle of those three, the one factor that predicted sexual satisfaction among this age group, and remember, you're absolutely right, there's a lot of um, stereotypes about older gay men and older lesbians and older bisexuals and older trans people that clearly don't, that clearly belie the reality of their lives. But the one area that was the only predictor of sexual satisfaction was relationship satisfaction, but that was connected. And that was a, that was a two person or if there were more than two, that was the, the uh, relationship, but that was connected to the individual with high resilience and low internalized homophobia because if it was the reverse and they had high internalized homophobia, I don't think that they would have felt as good in the relationship and been able to be sexual. Now, one might say, well, a relationship doesn't necessarily predict uh, good sex. Absolutely right. But if the individual inside the relationship feels strong in themselves, then that they bring that to their sexual lives. And so I would say, you know, um, I, I chose this topic, Fima, because I didn't want to look at just the problems. I didn't want to look at this idea that uh, gay men, um, you know, just uh, uh, weren't interested in relationships. All they wanted was sex or that bisexuals were the ones who created the AIDS crisis or or uh, lesbians never have sex. I just I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to kind of reify these uh, myths. But what I learned was by looking at sexual satisfaction and looking at this sort of positive take on older adults in uh, queer relationships, I found that um, I was also longing for the stories behind these statistics. And so after I did my research, um, I got uh, published. Uh, then I embarked on this book of basically stories about this generation and um, their, you know, their queer lives and their um, activism and their sexual lives and what it felt like for them to be older adults. And it was so much fun. And it was really rewarding to hear the stories because I was longing for, come on, tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you check my boxes on my survey. So uh, that was very exciting. Yeah. And I mean, that those are the kind of stories that, that we all need, knowing that we can survive and we can be resilient enough to, to be older adults as part of the queer community and we can still have fulfilling lives and i i really want to listen to all the wonderful stories too uh but you mentioned your book so this is a perfect moment right. to segue into it the that was story. good how i mentioned the book right i just snuck it was it, right it was perfect it was perfectly <laughs> placed <laughs> thank you so you you wrote the book the stonewall generation book mm-hmm. you want to talk to us yeah, about yeah, yeah. The whole yeah. book. <laughs> so I wish I wish your uh, listeners could see, but I'm holding it up to show you, and I'm so proud that my name is on a book. I can't <laughs> believe it. So 
this may be my only book, Dan. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's hard to write a book. It takes a long time. It's a lot of work. The best part of the book was going out and doing the interviews. I went, I crisscrossed the country and I went to people's homes and I went to people's, um, places of work and I also went to conferences and I interviewed people all over the country. So that was exciting. But I also wanted to make sure that this book wasn't just about people who looked and acted like me, uh, you know, uh, 60-something cis, white, Jewish, lesbian, middle class. You know, like there, there's a lot of us, but that's not that interesting a story. So, <laughs> so I felt like, again, it was really my responsibility to begin to open up this um, picture that I was drawing of who these LGBTQ elders are. And so I found 10 people. And I did a lot of work to find people who were really different um, geographically, for sure, but also in terms of orientation and gender identity, in terms of politics, and also in terms of the political work that they were doing. But you know, it's interesting. One of the one of the things that I didn't really expect was that they would all be activists, and that was just a, a cool discovery. By the end, I realized those are the people I was really attracted to, and those are the stories I really wanted. And as an activist. Myself, I really wanted to hear what movements these people were involved with and how they perceive uh, sexual human rights. Because, you know, when, when I call the book The Stonewall Generation, at Stonewall on June 28, 1969, drag queens and drag kings and people of color led the way. And yet the world, the world thinks that the Stonewall Generation sort of you know, the whole rebellion was fought by some young white gay men. And that's certainly a part of the population, but that wasn't all it was. And so I wanted to find out where our roots have come to, right? So, you know, we talk about roots and twigs. Well, the roots of our very movement of this, um, you know, the Stonewall Rebellion is what some people think of as the birth of the modern gay liberation movement. And I put that in quotes because now we understand it's more expansive. But but those people were fighting not just for rights, not just for legislation, but they were fighting, and not just for love, they were also fighting for sex. And yet we often forget that in our determination to get more civil rights for, for the community that I inhabit. And so I wanted to ask these people questions about what are they fighting for and what have they been fighting for and what, what is their understanding of sexual rights being and what is their understanding about their own sexuality? So as a sex researcher, I wasn't, um, bifurcating their interest in politics and their interest in sex. It's all in there for me. So in the book, what I did was I organized the book around each person's story. And they're beautiful stories. They're fantastic stories. And I couldn't tell these stories. They're not my experience. They're everybody else's. In the book, brings their experiences into the book in a way that makes, I think, the telling of the Stonewall Rebellion a much more authentic story. Um, I did some work, you know, on the historical side. Um, in the beginning of the book, and I did some kind of summary stuff at the back, but 
mostly it's other people's stories and I laced it with their photos. So on every interview I brought with me a photographer and they took great, beautiful photos of each person. And so in the beginning of each chapter, there's a photo of the person that I highlighted in that chapter. And so they're great. You know, they're just beautiful. Um, and because of these folks in my book are activists, I've noticed these photos on flyers that um, uh, uh, these people are um, announcing for um, meetings that they're involved in and speaking at. So it's been a really incredible journey. That was the most fun part was finding different kinds of people, going out and meeting them and, um, you know, realizing that this world was just filled. I could have filled the book with another, you know, two dozen people. The hard part of the book was, you know, transcribing and editing <laughs> and all that stuff. But we won't talk about that now. I don't want to remember that. It's like, it's like <laughs> when I, like when I had my first child, I didn't want to remember the uh, childbirth part. I just wanted to like, you know, forget the pain and try, try to have a, you know, try to remember the good parts. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you have a favorite uh, person that you interviewed? <laughs> I have so, I fell in love with everyone. Um, There are two people in the book, uh, Miss Major, Griffin Gracie, you may have heard of her, a really um, incredible leader in the trans community, has spent most of her life um, working on the disproportionate incarceration of trans women of color, and so has worked in prisons. And um, uh, her story is incredible. And she was born in Chicago in 1940. And... Um, went to prison at Danamora with a lot of people who were part of the Attica uprising in upstate New York and um, learned a lot about activism and learned a lot about politics. And she was at Stonewall Tavern the night of the rebellion. Um, and she was a sex worker in those days and uh, talks about that in the book. I love that story. Um, there's another person who was also at Stonewall. Um, and what's nice about David Um, is that, uh, David Velasco Bermudez, uh, was also born the same year, 1940, um, in New York. He wasn't a political guy. He was just going to have a drink with some friends that night. Uh, Judy Garland had just died and he was really upset and he wanted to have a, a couple of drinks with some friends. And he was in the bar when it happened. And as a, as a Puerto Rican man, um, he sat, as he called it, Um, in the back where the Latin guys sat. And um, so he watched what was going on in the front of the bar and he was able to get out um, safely. No one else in the book was actually at Stonewall that night, but every person in the book had somehow been changed and their lives were irrevocably changed by the events that happened that night and the subsequent nights of the Stonewall Rebellion. And they all talk about what it was like to remember where they were when Stonewall happened. So that was quite interesting. Um, Hardy Haberman, uh, who's been active in the leather community and also the prevention of sexual violence community in Dallas, Texas, uh, speaks about uh, what it was like in the bars in Dallas when the lights would flash And that would mean that if you were dancing with someone of the same gender, you quickly switched and found a different partner 
because that meant the cops were coming in to do a raid. Um, so lots of really interesting stories. Um, Edie Daly talks about when she met her lover, Jackie Merkin, who's now 90 years old. They met in their 60s, and Edie talks about how when she met Jackie, it was the best sex she ever had in her entire life. And I love these stories. You know, I just, every one of them, I just fall in love with. So, um, Imani Woody, uh, a African American, same gender loving woman from Washington DC has been working on housing for, um, LGBTQ elders, um, across the country. And Mandy Carter, uh, has been an uh, anti-war activist for 50 years. And she and I have been speaking on different panels and, I just love the the work that she's been doing. And she talks about how there was a, a guy who came to speak in her high school class and he said the word gay and it was the first time she'd ever heard the word, you know, that kind of thing, the power of one person. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've been doing some readings, uh, all virtual, of course. Um, although I did do a reading in my backyard when the book came out, we spaced everybody six feet apart. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but I have to say, um, I've gotten some really wonderful feedback from people who are of that generation, um, who love hearing their stories. Um, and I've also gotten some great feedback from younger people who are really happy to hear what it's like to be an old queer person. And those voices are often hidden from them. Uh, so I've been, um, I've been having some really good feedback from people. I was very concerned that, you know, there would be some uh, big criticism that I would have made some um, uh, historical error or something, but so far so good. I, I have, yeah. I have really um, found people to be very positively surprised. And um, I was working with a 80 year old uh, uh, therapist who's interested in writing a memoir and she heard about my book and we've been talking and, she said she had no idea about any of this. It was so amazing. Like she's a heterosexual woman and just never knew any of the stories. So yeah. I that was great. So there's one guy in my book who's a young guy, uh, Joey Wasserman, who worked at Sage, which is a really great organization for LGBTQ elders. And he's in the book because he loves the stories of his elders and he talks about that in the interview. Yeah. It's it's wonderful because like we mentioned at the beginning, the queer community is always told that this is something of the youngsters, that this is something new and this wasn't like it was in, in the good old times. But queer people have assisted forever and will continue to assist forever. But for us to know and listen to the voices of previous generations, know their struggle and know how much they fought for all of our rights, our sexual rights, our right of marriage and, and everything that's happened in the past dec few decades. It's so important to listen to that first person perspective of the people that were at, that were there that lived through Stonewall and lived through the ripple effects of Stonewall through, uh, through their generations and the generations that came after them. So it's, it's, it is a fantastic resource. Um, we're almost Thank running you. out of time. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate <laughs> that because that's, that's the work, right? The work is to allow other people's voices to, to really be heard. Absolutely. And everyone, and everyone in my book 
they are so happy that they're part of something now. You know, that like somebody in 20 years from now is going to be able to hear their stories after they're gone. So thank you for saying yeah. that. Yeah. And it's, I see the, 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 the baby gays as they call themselves sometimes and they, they look sometimes hopeless because they haven't met anyone that is older and right. that is also a seasoned gay, if we, if you will, to continue right. the, the bad analogy. But <laughs> having someone to look up to in terms of like, if they made it, I can make it. I can make it through all these tribulations that I'm going through as a teen or as a early ad adult because they made it. And it's it's wonderful. It's, it's a great resource and I recommend it to everybody. Mm, Now, before you we, <laughs> you're welcome. Before we go, I wanted uh, to give you a chance to plug your podcast, um, yeah. Our Better Health. <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just, um, let's see, we're, I think we're up to our 117th episode. Wow. <laughs> I know. So um, we, uh, let's see, we have been around for about six or seven seasons. We're not sure. I've been saying we're in our sixth season, but we might be in our seventh. But who cares? <laughs> we're having a ball. Um, Dr. Rosera Teresi, who's a sex therapist, and myself are the co-hosts. And we do something that I really believe in, which is cross-disciplines. So she speaks as a clinician. I speak as an educator. And we speak to uh, really interesting people in the world of sexuality and aging. Uh, so, for instance, um, recently we had Joan Price and Jessica Drake on talking about uh, the, a new video in Jessica Drake's Wicked Sex series um, called Senior Sex. And in it, there are two older couples played by real older people, like not um, celebrities, but real people. Um, and then they're interspersed with um, between their uh, lovemaking with uh, short presentations by Joan Price, who's a sex educator, talking about Uh, some of the interesting um, uh, stuff that we've been talking about tonight. And what's great about it is they adore each other. And so it's really fun on the podcast to sort of see their chemistry together. Um, uh, prior to that, we just did uh, something with Lee Phillips, who's um, doing a lot of work on uh, chronic disability and sexuality and aging, really interesting person. Um, and we've done just a ton of really, I think, interesting um interviews with people who are really insightful and great thinkers in our field. So it's called Our Better Half because we believe that um, sex in the second half of life is the best. So uh, you can check it out on Spotify and all those different places. Um, and you can just go to our website, ourbetterhalf.net. Um, and please subscribe. And, you know, one of the things about doing your podcast reminded me that um, we all are kind of taking different uh, tacks on our podcast, but people can learn so much now, right? From the airwaves. It's incredible. When I was young, yeah. none of this was available. You know, I'd like listen with, uh, you know, my transistor radio sometimes, but there wasn't really much on. So uh, these are really valuable resources that you, you all are providing through CSPH. And I'm a big fan of your center and, Um, also what we're providing I think is a really good resource for people thank you yeah. so you can find the podcast on ourbetterhalf.net and your book um, the Stonewall Generation book it's at broadsidebooks.com uh, those two links will be on our 
episode description so you can you don't have to park and write all this down <laughs> yeah really but they're not going to be in the show notes only in the show notes right <laughs> yeah in the show notes <laughs> well thank you dr jane for joining us uh, this was a wonderful topic and a wonderful conversation i hope to have you back soon and i can't wait to dig into your book great thank you so much for having me thank you thank you Virgin Territories is a podcast by the CSPH, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality education, therapy, and professional training to adults. To learn more about the CSPH, please visit our website at thecsph.org. There, you can sign up for our newsletter, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work.